The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hey everyone, this is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists, and our sponsor is ALS Goldspot Discoverers. They're a technology company that believes in the power of combining excellent geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. They work across commodity types, deposit styles, and data sources to solve some of the top problems in mining and mineral exploration. The sponsorship supports the sharing of ore deposit knowledge globally, and it helps bring our community together. I'm Sam Weatherly, a geologist at Tech Resources, and I'm your host for this episode. This week, we're going to look at carbonatites. It's a world of weird magmas, unusual ore deposits, and minerals with really long names. And who better to introduce this to us than someone who's seen more carbonatites than pretty much everyone else on the planet? My name is Tony Mariano. I'm an exploration geologist with probably about 60 years of experience in the field and in the laboratory. I have three sons, all in geology, but my oldest son, young Tony, uh, works with me and I really depend on him because as I mentioned earlier, I don't even know how to turn a computer on. But <laughs> I, I have been responsible for finding some of the elements that make them work. So that may justify my inability to use the computer. <laughs> okay. Light rare earth elements are one group of metals associated with carbonatites that I think a lot of people will have come across. But that's not only what carbonatites offer. They offer much more than that. And those are the rare earths in particular that you're talking about there? or Because carbonatites host a wide range of commodities, right? We should probably make that clear from the start. Yes. A lot oh, of yes. people hear about rare earths, but... It's also well, niobium. They are the principal source. They are essentially the only major source for niobium on a world of carbonatites. They are extensively utilized, especially in Brazil and, and in Europe for igneous phosphates, appetite. Okay. And of course, the copper bearing carbonatite in Palabora in South Africa was the least expensive copper deposit. It's not a porphyry copper deposit, but at the, at the time, the source for copper came from, from granites. And in this case, calcopyrite occurred as a, and still occurs, as an accessory mineral in calcite dolomite. It made it the least expensive for mining. And right now, it's been mined extensively and I think it's being still mined underground. Okay, so maybe, uh, so one question that, that I have now turning more to, to carbonatites is, for you, what defines a carbonatite on the basis of field observations? Sure. Well, first of all, it may, and indeed in some cases, have the indication of being intrusive. So that kind of, I mean, what else could you have? An intrusive marble or an intrusive uh, limestone? 
and it's composed predominantly of calcite and dolomite and often accessory magnetite and apatite, but it is also associated with alkaline rocks, and many of which are a pre-alkaline. Okay. Now, if you're doing exploration in areas where you are able to see rocks that have some intrusive textures and features, again, the simplest way of differentiating a carbonatite from metamorphosed limestones or marbles is it will be anomalous in the rare earth elements, and it will be light lanthanide enriched as far as the rare earth elements is concerned. When you make a chondrite normalized plot of the rare earths, you will have no europium anomaly. Now, there are trace elements, which certainly can give you an indication, like um, niobium and barium and strontium. But the element that is almost always present is strontium. You may have a lot of barium in some cases. You may just have a little. You almost always have anomalous niobium, but most often not a sufficient amount of niobium to be of economic value. So again, the other feature that is necessary is radioactivity. And once you've established those things, that can be done very simply. You don't necessarily have to do isotope work or sophisticated laboratory analyses. That is almost enough to tell you, yes, it's a carbonatite. The other thing is phenotization is often associated with carbonatite. That is alkali metasomatism. Now, according to a lot of academic geologists, they believe that phenotization or alkali metasomatism of the intruded country rock or pre-existing rocks is an indication of carbonatite. That may occur and it may not occur at all. It may be difficult to run into it. But I developed techniques for identifying phenites in Africa in South America, in the Amazon, and other areas, when it occurs in, in very, very low quantities, using cathodoluminescence and the presence of ferric iron, in which case, when you have a strongly alkali environment, okay, magma or solutions, any iron present will be brought into the ferric state. That is known to experimental petrologists as the alkali ferric iron effect. And if you bombard rocks with electrons, trace amounts of feldspars will exhibit brilliant red luminescence. And that, to me, is phenotization, alkali metasomatism. We'll hear more from Tony later, where he'll tell us about his career in exploration and about the economic geology of carbonatites. But our first two pieces today are about where we find carbonatites and about some of the processes that convert carbonatite magmas into mineral deposits. Our first story today is from Emma Humphreys-Williams. Emma works at the Natural History Museum in London, UK, where she manages chemical laboratories and conducts research into carbonatites and other aspects of igneous petrology. And I wanted to talk to her about a paper she co-authored last year in Elements. So recently then, you finished curating a global compilation of carbonatite occurrences, and you've used it to look at relationships between carbonatites and global tectonics. It sounds like a big task, so can you tell us about your compilation? Yeah, um, I firstly should not take entire credit for that. Obviously, this has been Alan Woolley's lifetime work of cataloguing all of the alkaline rocks and carbonatites. And really, my role has been digitizing that and getting it into a form where we can 
perhaps analyze the data in a new way and actually adding some of the newer information to that catalog so that it's up to date. But yeah, that's been a work in progress for a number of years. And and, and really, it's been about digitizing that initial catalog that was published back in the 1980s and, and getting that all together over the four volumes of alkaline rocks and carbonatites of the world into an Excel spreadsheet that we can actually interrogate. So how many occurrences are there in your collection? How many commonalities do we know yeah. of? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. So when we published, it was 609 examples. And again, um, the definition of carbonatites is controversial in, in a sense that some people would call what some people would call a carbonatite isn't necessarily what other people would call a carbonatite. So the kind of classification of 50% igneous carbonate minerals is generally used more than 50%, but that can be formed by a number of processes. And, and I think traditionally people want to talk about igneous carbonatites, and there are also hydrothermal carbonatites and carbonatites that aren't necessarily carbonatites that are formed through metamorphic processes. So rocks that have that kind of mineralogy that might have formed okay. through metamorphic processes. So it's not it's not an easy category, category to, to define, but we've got 609 that have been described in the literature as carbonatites at that time. But there are ones that I'm aware of that are newer. Okay. Just to give people a flavor of what's in it, where are the carbonatites located in a geographic sense on the earth? Yeah, I mean, great question. That's uh, And that's one of the really interesting things that's coming out of this work is they are globally distributed. They're, you can't, they're on every continent, but importantly, they're not found in the oceans. And that is probably telling us a first order piece of information about what's controlling how these melts are generated. There are a few examples of carbonatites in the oceans, like the Cape Verde Islands, the Canary Islands, but they're very, very rare. But you do find them largely on the continents and largely where you have cryptonic lithosphere. Okay. So can you speak uh, a little bit more then about the geologic setting that we find them in on the continents? You mentioned cratons are important and that's on the margins. Yep. So our, our study has, was comparing kind of the different tectonic settings that you've found through Earth's history. And unfortunately, those reconstructions, you know, are amazing, but we can only go back about 500 million years and the record of carbonatites goes back 3 billion years. So we can only look at a sort of small subsection, but what we found was that actually they're very uh, closely associated with the edges of cratons. That was the strongest correlation we had. We also looked at rifting. And again, the data on paleo rifting is obviously, as you can imagine, quite coarse, if you like. We did find some association with that. We had about 25% of examples were associated with paleo rifting. And large igneous provinces was another feature that we looked at because that had obviously been described in the literature before. And we did find a slightly weaker correlation to that process. So yeah, there are features that we see today that are associated with with these kind of rocks and alkaline rocks as well and carbonatites. But yeah, the, the strongest correlation is the edges of cratons. Right. Got you. Are there any instances where carbonatites have been repeatedly emplaced at the same time, showing repeated use of translithospheric pathways, for instance? Yeah. I mean, Alan and Ken have described that a lot from Africa, so the East African Rift, obviously, there are repeated episodes of, of magnetism there. And also in Greenland and Northern Canada, you see that kind of repeated activity there. So yeah, it does look like the lithosphere has a, an important role in allowing these magmas to escape, because obviously we're dealing with quite small volumes, relatively speaking, of magma. And, and so the lithospheric structure must have a, a control over when those melt 
results can be extracted and erupted or emplaced in the crust. I should mention here that for this part of the episode, we're going to focus strictly on igneous carbonatites. There are essentially three ways of producing igneous carbonatites. Some of them are produced directly from the mantle by mantle melting, but other types are produced by fractionation of alkaline magmas. And in those cases, carbonatites can be produced by fractional crystallization, or they can exhale from the alkaline magmas as immiscible liquids. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the, the lithospheric structure and, and what's located beneath it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the sources of carbonatites and what eventually might lead to that association between carbonatites and craton margins, what mantle conditions are necessary for generating carb- carbonatite melts? Yeah, so if you look at the chemistry of these rocks and their associated alkaline rocks, obviously they're enriched in elements that are generally incompatible in mantle minerals, so alkali elements, volatile elements. And so when you're thinking about melting the mantle, obviously it's very, very difficult to melt the mantle to generate a melt of that composition through the lithosphere. So what you're saying is that there has to be something weird then in the mantle source or something unusual about that mantle. Absolutely. So so on a first order basis, it's easier. So it's more likely to occur if, if the mantle is enriched in the first place. And we have lots of evidence for enriched mantle underneath the continental lithosphere. It's quite obvious that the lithospheric mantle is quite heterogeneous and it's in places extremely old. So it's had a long time to accrete these kind of complex mineralogies in places. And potentially the architecture of the base of the lithosphere also influences how variable or how concentrated these incompatible elements might be. Given the repeated nature and the association of these rocks with lithospheric structures, it's likely that these incompatible elements and melts are likely to gravitate to lithospheric lows in the bottom of the topography. So whether a cenosphere is, uh, the lithosphere is thinner essentially, and, and, and where you have fractures. So that's why we think that's, it's been described by others as well on the edges of these cratons where you have very thick lithosphere, you may well be seeing a gradient, a chemical gradient, if you like, from the very thickest lithosphere where you've got very old enriched mantle and small fraction partial melts forming and moving along the base of the lithosphere to a thinner lithosphere and where, where there are fractures and appropriate stress regimes, you can extract those melts then. Okay, so the the lithospheric mantle then is not just like a, it's not a static thing that's just sitting there at depth, but it's being sort of reworked and elements are mobile and they're migrating towards thinner parts of the lithosphere through the presence of fluids, buoyant fluids and small degrees of melting that are happening deep down inside the lithosphere or at the base of the lithosphere? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, we know that the asthenosphere convects, yeah. right? And, and, and so it's likely that that convection, just the convection itself is probably generating small fraction partial melts as um, a parcel of that asthenosphere buoyantly rises. Some parts of it that reach the above the solidus because it's because it's rising and decompressing, those small fraction melts may not go anywhere, but some of them may manage to escape the convecting asthenosphere, but then become trapped at mm. the lithosphere asthenosphere boundary because the lithosphere is a rigid solid. 
plate at the top there. And so over geological time, you can imagine that that process in itself would create metasomatism of the base of the lithosphere. On a larger timescale, though, how has the abundance of carbonatites changed throughout Earth history? You mentioned the oldest one that we know of is three billion years, was it? That's right. Tupatalik in Greenland is three. 0.01 0.01 billion, wow. I believe. So yeah, I mean, two thirds of Earth's history are represented there. But yes, uh, obviously, we have the preservation record to deal with. And, and that's not straightforward to unpick. But basically, from 3 billion years to the present, there have been carbonatites um, emplaced or erupted. There have been a few periods of quiescence, if you like, where we don't have, say, for, I don't know, a, a few hundred million years, we might have no examples of carbonatites early on in the record, say, between three and about 1.5 billion years. But after 1.5 billion years to present day, we have an almost continuous record of carbonatites. I should say that the data is reasonably coarse in terms of carbonatite abundance, just because we are only dealing with 600 nine known examples. And actually, of those that have been dated radiometrically, we only have 387. So it's quite Mm. a coarse data set. And it's harder to draw out completely firm conclusions on what's going on. But when you use it in conjunction with a kimberlite record, and also the alkaline rock record that hopefully Alan and I will be getting our paper published soon on, you can see that this is reflected. The the record of the carbonatite trend through time is reflected in both the kimberlites and the alkaline rocks. And so, yes, there's definitely, uh, it's definitely telling us something about how the mantle has changed through geological time, potentially in terms of the metasomatism story. Obviously, the lithosphere has an important role to play in perhaps creating the right environment for for those melts to exist and controlling where they're extracted. And if you want to see an interactive map of carbonatites that Emma produced with her co-workers, you can do that at altcarb.myrox.info. For our next story today, we're going to look at some of the processes that convert carbonatite magmas into ore deposits. And in this field, some really interesting work has focused on the light rare earth elements. To help walk us through this science, here's Wei Chen, a professor at China University of Geosciences, and as you'll hear, an avid fan of carbonatites. Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Wei Chen from China University of Geosciences. My interest is working on carbonatites, a very special rock in the world and one of my favorite rocks on the earth. And why are carbonatites one of your favorite rocks? I don't all of them. Because it is very unique. So, um, compared to the more common silicate rocks, it's a carbonate rock and, uh, it's very special because it originates from very deep of the earth from the mantle part. So it's coming from very deep of the earth and, uh, then coming to the surface and it contains a lot of interesting resources such as rare elements and uh, niobium and fluoride and other things. So it's pretty and... Uh, so we're talking today predominantly about light rare earth element deposits in carbonatites. Perhaps you can begin by telling us what concentrations these metals are present in carbonatite melts and in carbonatite deposits. So in general, there commonly has several thousands of uh, parts per million, at least 
like in general for carbonatized melt, then there can be weight percent of various elements in some of the very uh, large various element deposits. Like for example, bioborer, we have like almost 12 weight percent of various elements in some of the extremely enriched uh, carbonatized samples. Right, and Bionobo is one of the biggest rare earth element deposits hosting carbonatites in the world, right? Yes, it's in the world, and it's the largest, not one of it's the largest one, yes. So just to summarize, there's about five orders of magnitude difference in the concentrations of light rare earth elements in magmas and light rare earth elements in deposits. So I guess that uh, a good place to start then is element partitioning in carbonatite magmas. Yes. So during partial melting, that's how carbonatite melts are originally generated. So light rear earth elements will preferentially partitioning into the carbonatite melt compared to the silicate uh, melts. And also through liquid immersibility, uh, recently we found that especially in the presence of uh, fluids such as water, fluorine, phosphorus, and the uh, various elements are strongly partitioned into the carbonatite melt, like in hundreds of times compared to the silicate melt. Okay, so it's just by the virtue of producing a carbonatitic melt, either directly by partial melting in the mantle or by silicated liquid immiscibility, those light rare earth elements partition strongly into the carbonatitic melts that are present in the system. Yes. And uh, the fluid composition can be very crucial for this like uh, strongly rare element partition. And the fluids there are going to be a mixture of things like fluorine, as you mentioned, chlorine, yeah. carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Are there any other fluids water. there that are particularly, and water, of course. Those are the important ones in the system. Yeah, uh, phosphorus and uh, sulfur can be crucial as well. Okay, so we've now generated a melt in the mantle and we've partitioned light rare earth elements into that carbonatitic melt. At shallow levels, that melt will begin to crystallize. So what happens next there on the on the path to forming a rare earth element deposit? So yeah, so minerals start to crystallize and the most common, the earliest crystallization minerals would be like magnetite, olivine, and uh, clinopyroxene. So all these minerals, they exclude various elements to their mineral structure. So what we will see is various elements will be increased in the late stage melt or liquid. And uh, considering what kind of uh, carbonate minerals will crystallize according to the experimental work and uh, some of the natural samples investigations. We find that the most common sequence of the carbonate crystallization might be from calcite to more magnesium and iron enriched phases such as dolomite and uh, to ankylite. So starting off by crystallizing magnetite, olivine, and kind of and peroxine, 
And as pre crystallization progresses, we crystallize carbonate bearing minerals such as calcite and then the iron and magnesium forms of those carbonates. And do those carbonate minerals still also exclude rare earth elements from their lattice when they're crystallizing? Yes. So it's rare elements are incompatible in these carbonate minerals. So crystallization is progressing. What happens next? So now the most of the minerals crystallize, then the temperature also decreases uh, a little bit. Then we come into the stage we call it in our paper as brine melt stage. Is is the melt contains brine. So we want to emphasize the lack of solute-rich volatile in this stage compared to the silicate system. So what we have now is it is like a continuous transition from the high temperature to the low temperature carbonatite magma so as a brine melt. And uh, it doesn't require any of the aqueous fluid phase, but it can be highly saline and like a sufficient high pressure and temperature. And I think in your paper, you summarize a bunch of work that shows the brine melt stage starts at about 600 degrees C and finishes at about 400 Celsius. What's the major chemistry of this brine melt? So like elements now contain can be like, um, because abundant of the calcite has been crystallized. So what has been left over are the sodium, calcium, and sometimes magnesium and uh, iron as well, and other saline uh, elements like fluorine, fluorine, sulfur, and uh, phosphorus as well in this brine melt. What is the significance of this brine melt stage for carbonatites that eventually become mineralized in uh, rare earth bearing minerals? So at this stage, the, the melt has been evolved to the more magnesium and the iron enriched compositions and the rare earth element concentration at this stage are high enough to form some of the rare element minerals such as monodite and some of the only phases of uh, rare element bearing carbonate minerals such as uh, bubankite and uh, carbonsanite uh, groups. So, so that's to say that most of the rare earth bearing minerals that form initially in these systems form directly from this brine melt stage and they're not igneous minerals, right? But they, they're forming in this common metasomatic So what sort of occurrences and textures of the rare earth bearing minerals can we find at this stage? So at this stage, most of the minerals are disseminated among the carbonate bases. There is one thing to point out is all the rare elements bearing carbonate minerals, and they are very ephemeral. So it is not quite common to see in the rocks what we see now. But in a few localities, we can find them associated with carbonate and some are as occurs inclusions in minerals such as dolomite, fluoroaptite, and a uh, Okay, so lots of inclusions, but primarily are disseminated 
form of mineralization at this stage. And you've spoken a couple of times now to the rather unusual chemistry of the fluids that exist in the system at this time from the brine melt stage. And as the system cools even further, we'll transition from a brine melt stage, I guess, more into a strictly hydrothermal stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so what effect does that hydrothermal regime have on the formation of the rare earth deposits? Mm-hmm. The hydrothermal stage is very crucial for the rare earth element mineralization because the fluids will react with the current carbonatite rock and uh, it will cause the dissolution with the primary carbonate rare element, rare element carbonate minerals and also some of the primary minerals such as fluoride and fluoroaptite and uh, calcite as well, it will dissolve the rare element in these minerals and uh, re-precipitate them to some of the most stable rare element minerals such as uh, monazite and bastonazite. That's uh, are the more common rare element minerals we see now in this rock. So would you say, in your experience of working in these deposits, that the bulk of the mineralization that is economic is related to the hydrothermal stage rather than the brine melt stage? Um, brine melt stage are the, from the most primary rare element minerals, but they, some of them are not so stable. So we cannot even identify some of the minerals right now. But in the, in this hydrosomal stage, all these rare element minerals are like recrystallized or reformed then to more of the more stable phases. And okay. And again at the at sort of like the deposit scale or the outcrop to deposit scale, shall I say, what sort of ore textures are associated with that remobilized rare earth elements? Are we still working with disseminated sort of mineralization or is mineralization can mineralization localize into veins uh, yes. and features. Yes. So yeah. through this metasomity, then also in some of the cases, you can be like metamorphosed. So we see a lot of like uh, veins, uh, rare elements, veins, very highly enriched in rare earth elements, especially sometimes we can see some of the anchorite vents like hosting most of these various elements minerals. Okay, and how big are those veins normally? I mean, can they they vary from being hairline in size up to tens of centimeters or meters in width? Depends on the deposit scale. So what we see like in one of the various element deposits in China is the Miaoya. Um, based in Hubei province, some of, um, where the China University of Virtual Sciences in Wuhan based <laughs> in the same province. So it's like the comlay we identify in the Niaoya complex is like uh, centimeters to like few of uh, like tens of centimeters. But what we see in Bayan Obo it can come to like meters or even tens of meters. 
For our last story today, we're going to go back to Tony Mariano and hear more about Cabanatites' exploration targets and about his life as an exploration geologist. So Tony, you've probably worked on more Cabanatites than most people on the planet. How was it that you first became interested in geology and in Cabanatites in particular? Well, I, I think that came from, I came from a family, mother and father, that were farmers in the Apennines of Italy. And so my love for the outdoors and for nature, that's what got me into geology. And then as far as Carbonatites is concerned, once I had a master's degree in geology, I went to work at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, where I was involved as a an elementary crystallographer, which was very important because the physicists and the chemists had no background in crystallography. And I started with them because I was able to find the C-axis of a, a synthetic ruby in seconds. It took them all day to do it at MIT. While working there, I worked on lasers, mazes, semiconductors. It was, it was material science, okay? And when I finally joined Kennecott Copper as an X-ray diffractionist, my interest in elements and my love for geology and the outdoors, I was working in a basic research lab, and they gave me the freedom to do a lot of work in a lot of places. Some of my early work was in, in Blue River. I did some of the earliest work on the Blue River Carbonatite, which is being considered as a possible source for tantalum and niobium. And, and where's Blue River? It's in, it's in British Columbia. Oh. <laughs> Maybe not, I should go visit that one sometime. Yes, you should. It's beautiful country. It's incredible country. And so at the time, Kennecott was partial owner of the Oka Carbonatite, uh, just west of Montreal, which was a source at the time for niobium, a small source. And I just became fascinated with carbonatites. Uh, the academic people, some of the academic people introduced me to the carbonatites of Sweden and of Norway and of Magnet Cove, Arkansas. And since I was in basic research and I was working for Kennecott with geologists that were aces in copper, and I knew I couldn't exceed them. They had PhDs in copper. I had no PhD at the time. And so I was interested in working in other areas. I was fascinated with the occurrence of carbonatites as a lover of nature mm -hmm. and fascinated with the complex mineralogy and geochemistry. And so I began to work. I visited mountain pass in California as a guest because of my academic interest in carbonatites. They invited me to get out to the mountain pass deposit in California, and they further invited me to visit the Arashaw carbonatite in Brazil, Minas Gerais, Brazil, which is the best source on a world level of niobium. And I worked there many years. Well, I was able to travel around the world for Kennecott to Africa and Nigeria, eh, eh, Namibia. At the time, it was Southwest Africa and South Africa itself and, and Brazil. And then they terminated basic research at Kennecott. And I was without a job. And I joined the United Nations. And they sent me. All around. I spent two years in Colombia, and later I traveled all around the world for them, looking at carbonatites and alkaline rocks. And in 1972, 
I joined the United Nations again for two years. And after that, I was on my own from then on as a consultant. I want to turn more to exploration now and ask you about the sort of techniques and tools that you use to interpret rocks when looking at carbonatites for their economic potential. When Tony and I look at rocks, we still do classical petrography and we combine cathodoluminescence with it. We get chemistry done. And of course, we do a lot of looking with the binocular microscope. We do heavy liquid separations. And in order to confirm much of the mineralogy, which is very important in interpreting uh, the economic potential of a carbonatite, we resort to SEM, okay, scanning electron microscopy, yeah. to confirm the mineralogical data that we obtain using petrography and particularly cathodoluminescence. At the start of the show, you told us how useful that tool is for looking at alkaline metasomatism around carbonatite systems. But I think it's fair to say that this is a technique that falls outside the typical range of methods that the majority of explorationists use today. So how do you do how do you go about doing this type of analysis? I have two electron guns in my house. An electron gun is is no more sophisticated than a vacuum cleaner. Okay. <laughs> okay, so they're relatively inexpensive an electron gun instrument for doing cathodoluminescence sells for about $25,000. Now, I also have a monochromator attached to that. So I am able to scan the emission spectra in the, in the visible and into the lower infrared. And that tells me something about what caused the cathodoluminescence. When you look at appetites of mantle origin or carbonatite or what have you, they will be activated principally by samarium 3 plus and to a much lesser lesser extent dysprosium and to a lesser extent manganese mn2 plus whereas crustal apatites will be dysprosium enriched and inferior samarium if an even if it even exists now dysprosium belongs with the heavy lanthanides and of course samarium with the lights and again Geochemistry of carbonatite is that it is light lanthanide dominant. So all you have to do is bombard an appetite with electrons, and you can quickly tell whether you're dealing with mantle-derived appetites. By the way, I did a lot of this work and published it, and in particular the Russians. Some of the Russians work preceded my work, and they did beautiful work on this all over the world. So have I. Yeah. All right. So maybe we should talk about mineralogy now. Can you tell us a little bit about the typical ore-forming minerals that are found in carbonatites? Okay. Pyrochlor is the major mineral that hosts niobium. There is a little bit of columbite. That's a niobium, tantalum, iron, manganese oxide. Okay. And in the old days, before people started working on carbonatites, that was the major source of niobium. When nuclear fission came into play, the nuclear vessels that were being used required high-purity niobium without tantalum. And then it was discovered that the mineral pyrochlor, which is a niobium oxide that may have calcium and sodium and barium and rare earths and other things, that that tended in, in various deposits, tended to be very low in tantalum. So that's what started uh, pursuing pyrochlor and carbonatites as a source. Now, uh, of course, the other great source of the rare earths 
is the mineral bastnosite. That's a rare earth fluorocarbonate, and it's light lanthanide enriched, okay? And it's uniaxial positive petrographically, but it's not always easy to identify petrographically. And sometimes, and most often, you want to confirm that, and you can do that easily using SEM, energy dispersive spectroscopy, in seconds will tell you that you're dealing with bastinocyte. Otherwise, in some of the cases with rocks, you have to isolate the minerals and do X-ray diffraction. And that's very time-consuming. And time is very important, isn't it, when we work? Yeah. Anyway, uh, there are at least two other minerals that may occur, or three, in substantial quantities that could qualify a carbonatite as being uh, of economic value, and that would be parasite and syngocyte. And to some extent, you can almost say it's a bastinocyte-type mineral. It's very similar structurally and chemically to bastinocyte. But the parasite and syngocyte have additional calcium in the site that contains the rare earths and bastinocyte. So you prefer to run into bastinocyte, but you do run into those other minerals. And when you do, it's very important for the processing engineers to understand that so they'll know how to go about processing. Now, the other mineral that can occur as a primary igneous mineral in carbonatites is monazite. And, of course, that's the rare earth phosphate. And when it shows up, it's light lanthanide enriched, and it's relatively low in thorium content as opposed to monazite in in igneous and metamorphic environments. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that happens, monazite is one of the minerals that occurs and feeds a marketplace right now from Mount Weld in California. That's a different kind of monazite. If you have a barren carbonatite that has calcite dolomite and little appetite, accessory appetite in it, all of those minerals contain rare earth elements. And the calcite dolomite may represent more than 55% of the rock. Now, the appetite may contain 4 or 5%, but most often around 2% rare earth elements substituting in the structure. There may not be any other igneous rare earth minerals in that occurrence. When that occurrence is exposed to lateritic weathering, the calcite dolomite and appetite are totally destroyed chemically, and you liberate the rare earth elements. And if you have appetite present, which you often do, you bring phosphate into solution. And because of the high affinity for rare earths with petroleum, you produce super gene monazite. That's the, the source of the rare earths of Mount Weld. But it's much more difficult to process that than it is a bastinocyte from Mountain Pass, California, or from Bayanobo in China, or from Sichuan in China. Those are the yeah. major areas where bastinocyte occurs in carbonatites. Tony, it's clear that carbonatites host a diverse range of commodities that are critical to our society today. And in terms of servicing that demand from society, where do we have to look for these deposit types? Are there sufficient exploration opportunities at the surface, or are we being pushed undercover? Finding them un undercover is costly and difficult. And when you find a carbonatite undercover and you, you're exposed to it, then withdraw core or whatever, it may not be economical at all. Yeah. Now, 
The big thing with carbonatites is mineralogically, they're very heterogeneous. And there are different types of carbonatites, okay? As, well, Roger Mitchell talked about carbonatites and carbonatites, and Alan Woolley and Bruce Kerskod did a lot of work describing it. And they're all ACEs, those guys. I happen to have looked a little more than they did in an economic fashion. So because they are very heterogeneous, you may have exposed well-known carbonatites that have not been looked at sufficiently, and they have may have an area that will contain economic mineralization. That's always a possibility. But it costs money to do that kind of exploration. Of course. Those carbonatites that are exposed have been looked at quite well by many, many people all over the world. So I imagine that in those situations then where, in that situation that you spoke to there, where there may be part of a carbonatite that is mineralized, right? But we just don't recognize that. That's right. There's a footprint problem there, I suppose, right? Understanding the footprint of that mineralized part of the carbonatite is quite difficult. And then it can be hard to... Well, some, some of these carbonatites, first of all, carbonatites have various pulses of introduction, and there may be some long hiatus periods. Nelson Eby and I did some fission track work years ago on a whole load of carbonatites from Brazil and Paraguay. And we discovered, we looked at carbonatites from different parts of an occurrence that they may have been as close to a 30 million year difference in the geochronology of different pulses. That's a huge amount of time. Yeah, that's huge. Now, some people do. Michael Abar, who's an ace, carbonatite man, does not agree with that. However, we feel pretty confident about that. Now, Palabora, the mineralized carbonatite at Palabora is transgressive. In Arishaw, Brazil, which has got a, a diameter of about five kilometers, it has a central core that's a little less than a kilometer, I guess, that is, occurs as transgressive mineralization and that's where the niobium is really concentrated. If you look at some of the rocks in the outer annulus of Arishaw, you're just going to run into trace amounts in many cases of niobium. But in the central core, you're dealing with as high as 3.5% NB205. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, um, again, the point is, in a carbonatite, you, you have various pulses of mineralization you may have, and they may consist of totally different mineralogy. So if you have, and some of the carbonatites in Europe certainly fall in this category, and in South America and various parts, and even North America and Canada, and only if you're able to look at them extensively, and that's very costly, that's not inexpensive. So in Europe, in North America, and elsewhere around the world, I think carbonatites have got a role to play in that as well. So in terms of achieving a stable supply of commodities from carbonatites in the future, what do you think the main barriers are to that? Is it a question of discovery of carbonatites or effective exploration of the ones that we know processing, or is it like a a bravery gap instead, you know, being brave enough to commit to exploring and mining? I would say that concentrating on studying the deposits we already know to exist is probably the most important, but again, it's costly. Now, you know, as far as that subject is concerned, one of the um, elements that are considered critical today are the rare earths, because, you know, of their application that they have. 
that's very special. And you, you can't substitute that with other elements. Like people attempt to do uh, aluminum for copper years ago. Okay. Copper is very, very special. Yeah. Okay. Aluminum is not going to take it over. The rare earths, because the valence electrons are inner orbital electrons, they have properties that are very different from other elements where the it's the outer electrons that occur in these. The market for rare earths is very, very important, but it's a relatively small market, okay? Yeah. So when you run into deposits that have anomalous rare earths in it, if you want to start that up as a mine, you're talking maybe a billion dollars to finally get rare earths out of there. Mm. And with the market as small as it is, can you afford to do that? Yeah. Okay. Now, the other thing about the rare earth elements, because the market is small, we have discovered exploration geologists, many occurrences in the world, especially in North America, in Canada, and in the United States, where we can obtain the rare earths right now if we need them on a critical level because of, I don't know, war or some political problem, so we can't get them from China or elsewhere. The governments of the U.S. and Canada or Europe, they can afford to pull those rare earths out of deposits that are not considered economical at this time. It's costly, but so all of the armaments that countries are required, costly. So you can get those things if you need them. So that means how critical are they? So that's all we have time for today. To our guests, Emma Humphreys-Williams, Wei Chen, and Tony Mariano, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and enthusiasm on carbonatites. And many thanks to all our listeners. We'll be taking a short break over the holiday season, but we'll be back in mid to late January with Anne Thompson, who will be delving into magmatic hydrothermal processes and their implications for ore forming systems across multiple scales, from deep controls on porphyry deposits to near-surface epithermal systems. I'm Sam Weatherly. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot Discoveries on their social media channels, where you'll get updates on new episodes. This episode was produced by your host, with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Blumel, Hallie Keevil, and Anne Thompson. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. So for now, goodbye. Hey, student chapters, don't forget the deadline for the chapter podcast challenge is coming up on the 29th of March. Not long now. We're looking forward to hearing all of your audio submissions and sharing them with the community of economic geologists globally. You've got time, so let's get it done.